Good morning, everyone. Hola, como estas? Bien? Okay, I'll tell you about that in a minute here. Concerning Brian and my red pants, Brian, you're fired. <laughs> but Brian gets fired on a regular basis, so he's accustomed to it, so it's no problem. So, uh, Just before Jesus ascended, Jesus gave what we know as the Great Commission, but I would challenge each and every one of us that it was more than just a Great Commission. I believe it was one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gave us. This was just before he went to sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He told his disciples, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what he told them to do. It was a gift. It was an incredible privilege that he gave them. Let me explain why it's a gift. See, have you ever had those situations where you saw a gift that didn't mean a whole lot, and then there was gifts that meant a whole lot? Now, let me illustrate the gift that doesn't mean a whole lot. You know around Christmas time, you are asked to do something when you go to a party. You're asked to bring a what? A white elephant gift. And so what you do is you go rummaging through the, the junk pile in your basement and you pull out a sombrero that, that you got last year at your work party and you're going to take this sombrero because what are you going to do with this thing? Nothing at all. It's meaningless. It has no value whatsoever. But you take it as your white elephant gift. There's not a whole lot of thought. It doesn't cost anything. It's really rubbish. But then there's the gift that matters. There's the gift that has been thought through. It has been paid for, and it has been meticulously packaged together. Now that is the gift that you enjoy receiving. I want you to know that what God did for us was not a white elephant gift. Not at all. What he did for us is that he planned out, he paid for, and he packaged together this beautiful gift. Look at the Great Commission. Well, we looked at, we're going to look, go back one slide, Sarah. Look at the Great Commission. Let these words sink in. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am always with you to the ends of the age. Let me tell you how Jesus prepared for this. If we take a look and in the scriptures, we can see that there was a meticulous plan. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says this. It says that God planned out in his grace, planned out to give us salvation, it says this, before the beginning of time. Now, how's that for preparation? Before the beginning of time, he planned to send his son as the Messiah, which means that God knew full and well when he created man that man would go their own way and that man would sin. And that's exactly what we're told the scripture says that we did. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and who was that man? Adam, right? And it says, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. 
God knew that we would sin. And what's interesting in the creation account, after man falls, blows it, God goes ahead and says, okay, Adam, here's the deal. This is the consequence to you. And woman, this is the consequence to you. And he even talks to the serpent, the enemy, Satan. And he says, this is the consequence to you. And, this, and the consequence to the enemy was the first prophecy. This is what he said to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning there will be friction, there will be strife between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, this prophecy was a prediction of the Redeemer. See, this striking the heel is the prediction of the crucifixion, the pain that would come upon this Redeemer. But he is saying that this Redeemer would come and that this Redeemer would crush the head of the enemy. And this is what God did way back since the beginning of time. He had this plan in place. My friends, this was meticulous. This was his plan. And he knew he had to deliver this plan because the enemy had a will for mankind. It was to kill, steal, and destroy. My friends, all we got to do is look at society around us and we see death and destruction everywhere. We see the enemy completing his goal. But God said, I am not going to allow that. I am going to provide a way of escape through the Redeemer. And so it was planned for. And then finally the day came and it was paid for. It was when God visited planet Earth. Jesus Christ came as the Messiah, the Redeemer. <clears throat> he came to pay the price. And he lived 33 years, and during his three years of ministry, he constantly pointed people to the way. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. <clears throat> In one of his teachings, he said this. He said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, then, uh, then destruction will come to the enemy. In John chapter 12. When he said that, he was predicting that he would be lifted up on a cross and at the time of him being lifted up on the cross, then would come the defeat, the crushing of the head of the enemy. It would be paid for, the righteous for the unrighteous. Colossians chapter 2 puts it this way. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code that stood against us, and he took it and he nailed it to the cross. My friends, this free gift of salvation to each and every one of us is free to us, but it was not free to God. It cost him dearly. It cost him his own son. This gift was planned for. This gift was paid for. And my friends, it was beautifully delivered. I am so glad that the redemption plan did not end at the cross. No, it continued on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 says that after three days, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You know what this means? It means that the, bank, the, the check was deposited in his death, but the, the, the check cleared the bank after the resurrection of Christ, and it was sufficient for all who have sinned. And God had paid the way. He beautifully delivered this through his son. 
Now that's what's amazing. Now you don't want to know what's even more amazing? Is that in this thing called the Great Commission, God then did something that was so profound. God took this, the thousands of years of preparation and the, the paying for this by Jesus going to the cross and his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and God packaged it up nice and neat in this thing called a gospel message, the good news of Christ, and he went and before he ascended into heaven, he said, okay, here's the deal. I did all that. Disciples, followers of Christ, here it is. It's in your hands. Now that is profound. The fact that he would put such a precious message into the hands of fallible people. But that was God's plan. It's amazing that God would do that. Now we're told in the scriptures for those that are willing, that are true disciples, that are followers of Christ, that are willing to take that message to all people, to all nations, God says this in Romans. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. My friends, according to the Great Commission, we have a beautiful message. And it was delivered to us beautifully. And what God wants us is to have beautiful feet that deliver that to those that are around us. So how are we doing how are we doing as a church in fulfilling what he says is the Great Commission, our marching orders? How are we doing? You know, from what I can see and from what people such as Dale Losh, who was here a few weeks ago, he's a missiologist, he studies the trends of what is happening in the church. He's seeing a lot of deficiencies, and I'm seeing a lot of deficiencies in terms of the church taking it serious in terms of making disciples. In other words, us reaching out to people and training those people individually and so that they can learn to train other people as well. How are we doing? I think there's three major things that are obstacles for us in the church today. I want you to think about it. See if it's true for you. Here's number one. First, making disciples has become a corporate rather than an individual practice. See, what I mean by that? Most, a lot of believers see church as a place where they can come and learn because a disciple is a learner and that's a good thing. You want to come here. But what they're doing is they're saying, okay, pastor, you disciple me. It's the, the pastor discipling the masses. And so they come in and they'll listen to some good music and they'll, they'll, they'll listen to the message. They'll be a learner. And then they leave and think the discipleship process is over without a thought of who am I going to take this information and give to someone else. See, discipleship is one of training. It's not one of just learning. It's me taking in and then turning around and giving it away. How am I doing that? Another thing that I see in the body of Christ is that believers are inoculated by our society to be consumers instead of contributors. Now, I don't mean to sound too harsh, but often we as believers will judge churches and will say, hey, what's in it for me? 
How is the children's ministry? Is it an excellent youth ministry? Is it an excellent music ministry? Is it an excellent, and you fill in the blank. And we think, okay, what can I get out of this thing called the church without even a thought of how should I then, after I've been received, give it away? How should I be a blessing to other people? See, God has an equation in the Scriptures where He says, I'm going to bless you so that you, in turn, will be a blessing to others. He did that with Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you incredibly. But when I bless you, please know that you are to be a blessing to the other nations. And in the church, God says, I want to give you good programs. I want you to have good ministries, but I am blessing you so that you will turn around and be a blessing to others. Here's the third problem that I see in regards to us fulfilling the Great Commission, and that is this. We have no time for relationships. Somehow, and, and this affects us in many different ways, in, in one way, it's, it's, it's us getting so busy in our schedules that we kind of take the significant things and replace them with the insignificant things. And, and I mean, they're, they're significant to some degree, but compared to the really important things, and sometimes we just kind of run into church and we get our dose of church and we run out and we're not really a part of the body and we become isolated, and there, then there's the other extreme where sometimes we jump into the church and we become a professional connoisseur of everything that the church has to offer. And if there is a Monday, if there's a Sunday Bible study and a Monday Bible study and a Tuesday Bible study and a Thursday Bible study, we want to be a part of all of it. And before long, we evaluate and say, okay, have I had time to make a disciple? Have I had a time? Instead of just taking in, taking in, taking in, have I had time to give out? So I think we can have an ultimate test of whether we're fulfilling the Great Commission, and that's this. Answer this question for yourself. Who is my disciple right now? Who is my disciple right now? If the answer is nobody, then we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. And this most precious gift that God has given us, we have gotten busy with all the other stuff, and we have failed in the central, central thing, the marching order that he gave us to do. So what's the solution? The solution is really getting back to the basics. Please understand that the Great Commission, I don't believe it's meant to be difficult. It's simply meant to be obeyed. The Great Commission, in that Great Commission, he said this, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. My friends, this is why in this next series that's going to take us up to Christmas, we're going to be doing what we call the pursuit and the pursuit is really a pursuit of seeking what we need to obey that Jesus commanded. And so each week we're going to take a look at one thing that Jesus commanded and we're going to be very, very simple about it. And we're going to ask, okay, how do we need to obey it? Step one, step one is how do I personally need to obey what I have just heard? How do I need to do that? 
Step two is then, how can then I take what I have learned and pour it into somebody else? With every message that we have in the next several weeks coming up to Easter, there will not only be a study guide that's going to be for the small groups, but there will be a discipleship uh, paper that will be put on the web that you can use to train and if God gives you somebody to pour into that you can go through with them. And here's my prayer. My prayer as a leader, and we've talked about this as an elder board, is that our prayer is that as each of us would grow in our maturity, that we would invest into somebody, into somebody in a discipleship relationship. See, I believe those that are seeking, those that are new believers, need to learn how to be fed And God has called us to do that kind of thing. Then we can funnel them into a community group where they can learn there, but we need to do this responsibility. Now, I've taken a lot of time this morning to help you understand what we're going to be doing in the series, but I do want to take a look at one command this morning that is our first command, and that is a command that has everything to do with how each and every person begins the journey. And I want you to know that this command was the central message of Jesus Christ. It was something that he started off at the beginning of his ministry, and it was something that he lived out, and it was simply this. Repent and believe. Now, some of you would say, Steve, that's kind of old language, repent and believe. I don't care how old it is, it's right in the scriptures, and it was the central part of Jesus' command. So we're going to look at the message of repent and believe, we're going to look at how he implemented in the method, and then we'll look at a few responses. Let's take a look at that. Well, let's ask God to really bless this. As you turn to Mark chapter 1, let's uh, pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your word, to hear what you want us to do. Help us to obey this first command that you've given, and that is to repent and believe. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have our eyes open to the areas that we need to believe and to repent. In Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 1. And in verse, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15, but I want to set the stage with verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting, as Mark is writing this gospel, he is helping the readers understand what this book is about, and the very first line states it all. It says, the beginning of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is two words put together, which literally means good news. Synonymous with gospel is good news, and what is the gospel? What is the good news? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that prophecy that was given long ago, the Redeemer. He is the good news. Now go to verse 14 and 15. It says this. Now after John, chapter 1, verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. This was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Notice what he was doing at the beginning of his ministry. Proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news. He's proclaiming himself as the Messiah and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Now this was the central message of Christ. If you look through the gospel, you will see elements of repent or believe. Repent or believe. And this is what Jesus wanted his audience to do. But first of all, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. What in the world did he mean by the kingdom of God is at hand? Jesus was telling them that God was introducing and initiating this thing called the kingdom. Now for the Jews, they had in their mind that there was going to be a kingdom that someday they would inherit the earth. This isn't that kingdom. The kingdom that he was talking about was in the hearts of people. It would begin at Christ's coming because he's the initiator of it. And it would continue on until he comes back again. And we often know it as the church age. Right now, we're in the midst of that kingdom work that God is doing in the hearts of individuals. That's why Mission View is right here in a new community because we're a part of a kingdom work. And so this is what God wants. When Colossians chapter 1, Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Interestingly, earlier we sang a song about that transfer of praise God I am in the light. That whole song was about Colossians chapter 1. How we were in darkness, walking this way, walking aimlessly. God picked us up, took took us out of the muck and mire of this life. He washed us through the blood. He placed us on the path of the kingdom of God in light and said, walk my child. Aren't you thankful that God did that? Aren't you thankful that God has this thing called the kingdom? But when we have a kingdom, that means we have a king. That means that there's somebody that we finally submit to under authority. And that's our problem. We don't want to submit under authority. And that's why the central message from Jesus is repent and believe. Let's take a look at repent. The word repent literally means to turn away from an existing object of trust. Meaning, what I am chasing after, what I am going after in this life is the wrong object of trust. And what Jesus is saying is that my ministry is to help people realize they're going the wrong way. They're trusting in things. They're trusting in people. They're trusting in all kinds of stuff, but not the right things. And what I want them to do is to turn from that. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see this message come up and up uh, over and over again. He says to a rich young ruler who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, go sell all your possessions. What was he trying to do? Develop a works for him? No, no, no. What he was addressing is what his object of trust was in. His object of trust was in his own ability to make a living, his finances, his riches. And he's saying, I want you to repent from that, turn from that, and I want you to follow after God. This is what he was teaching. In short, Jesus is calling people then and now to turn from their sin, the things that fall short of God's glory, and follow after him. But the second part of the message is believe. We have to have something that we believe wholeheartedly in. And Jesus was giving himself as the Messiah. And Jesus took the next three years to show people why he was the Messiah. He did it through miraculous signs. He did it through his teaching. And he did it through love. And it climaxed in him going to the cross, 
dying on the cross, being buried, and then resurrecting to prove that he was God. And those that would follow after him would finally completely understand that he was the Messiah. And this started the wave of a Christian movement across this globe. After the Great Commission, these disciples went out and they went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God started this coloring of the earth, the landscape of the earth, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in Antioch, uh, this is where the people that were Christ followers were first called Christians. Do you know what the word Christian literally means? It means little Christs. Lost people so saw a difference in the way Christians live that they said, well, they're little Christs. They're, they're, this person, Jesus, I don't understand them, but I do understand, I mean, I understand they're different. And that's what he wants us to be. And this was the message that he wanted out. So this was the message that Jesus gave. This was central for him. And we are to repent and believe as well. Now, what was the method? How did he carry that message out? He did it this way. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to do a case study with something that's probably very a story very familiar with many of us. Here's our case study. What we're going to look at is see how Jesus implemented this message of repent and believe in this story. Luke 19 says this in verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You can tell what his object of trust is in. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we look at this situation, and you didn't hear the words repent or believe anywhere in this passage. But I want you to know that the evidence of that message is all over the place in this Let's take a look at how it develops. First of all, as I look at Jesus, I see his approach in delivering this message. And I believe he had a as-he-went presence in that community. Jesus went from one community to another, and no matter where he was, he always had the mission of God in his mind. He did not compartmentalize like we tend to do. We tend to compartmentalize. Sunday is my day of going to church. Monday through Friday, at, I'm going to be at work. 
in the evenings, Monday through Friday, is my kids' soccer games, it's my small group, it's my this and that, and then weekends, it's time for me to relax. The lines were all blurry with Jesus, even though he had events like this in his life, maybe not soccer games, but he had events and things and people to be with, he always had the mission in his mind. My friends, I believe as a church, if we're going to be successful, we need to have a 24-7 mission view mindset. It's not what we do here. It's what we do here and there throughout the week, always keeping that mission in mind. The second thing I see here is that Jesus is relational. Notice that Zacchaeus obviously has an appetite to find out more about Christ. He's probably heard about him. He maybe has heard his message before from afar. But this was his first chance to get him, get close to the guy. And the poor guy was so short, he couldn't see, so he climbed up in a tree just to see him. But Jesus knew his heart and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down here. I'm going to go to your house. Now, if your pastor calls you up and says he's going to go over to your house, it may be because I need a meal, but it might be because I want to get to know you. And here Jesus had a shepherd's heart. He saw the desire of Zacchaeus and said, I want to be in your home. I want to have relation. I want to know you because a home is a place of intimacy back then as it is now. Now, let me ask you something just as a side note. How did you get saved? For those of you that are Christ followers, how did you get saved? Just a little survey here. If you got saved because of a gospel tract that was put on the back of a commode or because of that $1,000 bill that really wasn't a $1,000 bill, but it gave you the gospel on it when you were a waiter or waitress and you read that, even though there was no real tip with it, um, you read that. How many of you got saved because of that? Let's see all the hands. Hmm. Okay, how about street evangelism? Somebody came up to you, you didn't know them, and they came up and they did a little chalk talk on the drawing here and gave you the gospel. Or maybe they, it was more of a confrontational evangelism and they shared with you Jesus that way. How many people have gotten, got saved that way? Let's see all the hands. Okay, we're, we're batting... Zero right now. Okay, um, how about you went to a special event and somebody brought out the gospel cube, okay? They, it was the gospel cube or the gospel flapper or the, the, the wordless bracelet or something like that. And they did a pres presentation. Now, they're all good presentations, but if you don't know what in the world there are, they are, then you obviously didn't get saved through that message. How many of you got saved that way? Let's see all the hands. There's probably some, maybe. Okay. How many of you got saved because somebody came alongside of you and loved you? Maybe it was your mom and dad. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor that said, I'd like to show you Christ. How many of you got saved that way? This is why Jesus did what he did. He was relational. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We're relational. We do got to bridge the gap. 
we do got to give the message because Jesus obviously gave the message. Here's the message. Here's how we see it. Jesus led this man to repent and believe. How do we see it? We see it in two ways. Number one, it says in the passage that when Zacchaeus invited him in, it says that he received him with joy. Now, I believe this is an indication that there was a belief that was stirring in the heart. The very fact that he climbed up a tree says that there was something going on inside of Zacchaeus. He had to know more. There was an interest. You might call him a seeker, somebody that really wanted to know spiritual truth. And so he is seeking. He's trying to find out. And he receives Jesus with joy. It's telling us that not only did he receive him with joy coming into his house, but the process of having him in his home and the message that he heard now we're not told all the dialogue that took place here but what i believe is he believed now it's interesting the word that dr luke uses here for joy he uses is in other places in the book of luke and almost every time it depicts a person coming into a place of belief in the messiah A good example of it is Luke 15. Luke 15, Jesus actually tells a story of a person who lost their sheep, a person who lost their coin, and a person who lost their son. And in all three instances, once that person found the sheep, found the coin, found the son, guess what happened? There was great rejoicing. The same word is used. It was a picture of how God feels when somebody that was lost, going the wrong direction, comes into faith in Christ. Jesus uses that of Zacchaeus right here. I believe he believed. But I also believe there's repentance because we see the fruit of repentance. What was Zacchaeus' object of faith before Christ? It was wealth, right? He was rich. He loved money. And notice what he does. Voluntarily. He didn't know, Jesus didn't have to tell him this. He did it because of repentance. He says, I give half of my possessions to the poor. I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus says today, salvation has come. Here's the last thing I want to point out, and that is that Jesus is the true seeker. My friends, Jesus is still seeking people. And he uses us today to to help people, but he's the one drawing. He's the one that people are interested in. They're not interested in you. They're interested in the Jesus in you. And that's what we need to proclaim. Now, how do people respond to this? Now, in the response, there's different kinds of responses. And in simplicity, the response is this. Some people accept it. Some people reject it. But as the band's going to come up right now, and as we're going about to close out, I want you to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we'll take a look at the last response, how people responded. John chapter 6, look at verses 54 through 56. Now Jesus, to give you the context, has been telling a Jewish crowd that they needed to believe in him. And then he makes this statement. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood abides in me and I in him. 
Now, I got to tell you, you and I, we read that and we think, man, that sounds weird. I mean, it almost sounds like Jesus is teaching cannibalism. But Jews didn't understand this at all this way. In the Jewish context, the Jews knew that the blood was so vitally important because they were used to daily sacrifices where animals' blood were shed. And that shedding of the blood was meant for an atonement for their sin. It meant that their sin was covered by God and forgiven. And the flesh was the picture of life. So the, here's the enigma of Jesus' words was that he was speaking of his own blood, providing an atonement of forgiveness for their sins. I could hear the Jews saying, What? What? Your blood? Your blood is my atonement? Are you crazy? I mean, only God could say something like that. Exactly. And his flesh was the, the embodiment of the life. And that's why Jesus says, you got to abide in me. you got to embrace everything that you see in me. And he had a lot of groupies. I want you to know Jesus had groupies at this time. They were following him. They even called themselves disciples. They were fascinated with all of the miracles. And now Jesus brings it down to a very personal point and says, okay, it's time to sign the dotted line. Are you with me or not with me? It's kind of like me saying, oh, I want to be in the army someday. I could put up posters. I could talk to a recruiter. But it's not until I sign that dotted line that I am in and committed. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, are you in? Are you committed to being a part of God's army? And notice the response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many. To be honest, most. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Most turned away. Only twelve followed. My friends, we live in a world where people talk about God and say, I believe in Jesus Christ all the time. You can watch famous actors and actresses and they'll just give praise to God, but then you see nothing in their life. You see political figures or you see people around you saying, oh yes, I believe in God, and there's nothing to show it in their life. And I believe if we're going to be a church that's going to be obedient to the Great Commission, it starts with us being obedient with the commands. And the question is, do you believe? Have you repented? Do I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? I think to some degree, for those of you that are familiar with the church culture, that might be the easy question to answer. Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. The harder question is, have I repented? Am I really trusting in Him as my Lord? Is it obvious in my life? And as we close out this morning, I want to do something. This is the point of vulnerability. And the point of vulnerability is we don't ever want anybody around us to think that we have problems. But if there is the Spirit of God is saying, you know what, there's an area I want you to surrender 
I want you to stand. If there's the Spirit of God is saying to somebody here that I want to get a hold of your heart in a particular area, I want you to stand. And what I want is for the body to come around you and to pray for you. Is there anybody that the Spirit of God at this point, you would say, yeah, yeah I know it because my heart's going like right now. If you would stand at this point.